0: Depending on how I feel, but a lot of times, especially if I'm feeling a little bit like my back or my hip or something or my knees are not, not as happy or even my ankles. It's, it's a weird thing. Actually, I found that dancing a achy body part fixes it. Yes. <laughs> right. Like my ankle will feel like something is weird and I'll like put music on and I'll start trying to move my ankle around to the music. And it, it's like, it's magic sometimes for letting go of that injury. So yeah, so I'll I'll do that specifically when, if I'm trying to get out of feeling uncomfortable in my body. If my body feels comfortable and I'm and I'm just good, like I'll just do whatever I'm going to do, right? I'll walk in and like start doing parkour, right? Start doing martial arts. But when there is when there's something that I'm studying in my body or trying to release, I do find those to be particularly
1: useful. That was Rafe Kelly, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap timing system in Kbox or coaches favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the muscle lab contact grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable, step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an eye, faster.com. Welcome to another show. Glad you guys are all here. And we got a great one today that, again, uh, I'm always just looking to provide. Uh, has uh, really selfishly all these shows uh, for my own learning to uh, gain as a holistic uh, view of the human performance engine as I can, all the factors that go into it. Uh, on one end, you could say we have all the the strength training schemes and some of the higher output motor unit output means overcoming isometrics and and uh, French contrast to help really get it out of athletes when it comes to power. I love those things. One thing that I've been learning or a a general concept that I've really been learning more and more I would say the last five years or so has been in the realms of movement quality and rhythm and timing and emotional states and, and tension patterns and looking at really what separates an average athlete from an elite. We, we say that the best, the best athletes are oftentimes, they're, they're fluid, they're almost dancing in their sport. I remember watching the NCAA championship back in 2005. I watched the NCAA division one track and field championship. Uh, And I was watching triple jump and it was amazing how fluid those, I just remember how fluid and the sound of those athletes on the runway jumping. If you spend enough time around elite athletes, you start to see these trends. And so I'm always excited to talk to experts who have knowledge not only in the realms of more quantitative methods, but also the qualitative and the ability to observe and get to the deeper roots of our human movement patterns. Our guest today is Rafe Kelly. He'll be back for his third appearance on the show. He's the owner of Evolve Move Play. And Rafe, uh, as per what I was just mentioning, has experience with dozens of movement styles. He's played many sports, including gymnastics. He spent time learning modern dance. He is primarily a parkour athlete. But in addition to that, Rafe has studied many forms of the martial arts and MMA styles. So when it comes to my own questions on human movement, Rafe very quickly comes to the top of my mind. I, I really enjoy his work on all things uh, movement from a holistic perspective. Our last show, well, really two shows ago, episode 174, was a hugely transformative episode with Rafe for me, his first appearance on the show. And he spoke there about play-based training, structured versus unstructured work, emotional and cognitive links to play and performance. On this show, we're going to follow up by tapping into his knowledge in terms of his experience in the martial arts, modern dance, fighting, and everything that goes with that. And how we can look at that, uh, that training construct, that movement construct, the concepts of rhythm, and how can we plug this into our own training programs? Perhaps you heard the teaser or you're just hearing this and you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to turn my weight room into a dance class. But as you listen, especially and especially towards the back end of the show, you'll find that there's really a wavelength to this. And it's not just about the dance, but there's so many concepts and ideas that can come out of this. All the way down to just using a metronome to help a tendon adaptation. So it was really great to have Rafe back on the show. We'll start out by talking a little bit about quantifying uh, fatigue and the extreme depth landings in parkour. And then we're going to get into movement quality and rhythm quality found in the martial arts and parkour and how we can port that over to general sports performance concepts. This was a really great show and it's always great talking with Rafe. All right, let's get on to it. Rafe, it's awesome to have you back on the show, man. Thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, it's a real pleasure. It's good to see you, Joel.
1: Yeah, I man, I tell you what, I miss um, since I left Berkeley, I used to do tree runs and stuff there all the time. And I can't tell you how much I miss that. There's really not much there's like little hills and fire hydrants here. So I I, I every time I uh, you know I see what you're doing, it makes me think of doing those runs and I, I definitely miss it. Are you um I know you just moved. Is there good trees to run on around like where you're at and any what's the vibe with the difference in environment there?
0: Yeah, it's not as much of a tree running place. Seattle has more big sprawling trees. This is more of a more deep nature experience of forest and crazy structures. So, two of the most kind of places that you see a lot in my videos are Larrabee State Park and Walken Falls Park. And those are here in, in Bellingham where I am. And those are like fallen logs in the woods and big boulders and cliff jumps areas. And then I'm right next to Lake Padden. And so I've been exploring there and there's Tons of interesting fallen logs and huge, like crazy trellises of vine maples over swamps. So I'm going to have to adapt some the way that I move and learn to, to get this experience. But yeah, it's been great. I have a, I, we also have a parkour park here. So I get to train and kind of like use that to train specific things that I want. And uh, I've been doing a little bit more into training in the urban area. And I have some good local training partners somewhere doing that. And I also have access to a gymnastics gym now. So I'm turning in the gymnastics gym, working on my acrobatics and being able to work on specific skills there. So and then I'm training MMA, um, which is awesome as well. So yeah, lots of good stuff. And Bellingham's beautiful. But yeah, I'm going to be, I think, more of a forestry rerunner The thing that's really awesome here that I'm excited about is canyon in the summer. It's a very, very cool area for that. So going to be a deep exploration of that this summer.
1: That's awesome, man. I mean, gymnastics stuff too. I, I, all I have is like the little parallettes. And for me to, I don't. You think about like training becoming more complex over time, and it's like you can give me like a bench press or barbells or parallettes, and I'll take the parallettes like mm-hmm. ten times out of ten. And I'll even if I did the parallettes and then went back to lifting, I think I'd be stronger even than if I was doing lifting in a lot of cases. I mean, yeah. I have to get back to it at some point to kind of re creating that mat pattern. But I've always enjoyed that. Yeah, it's like the. Uh, mindful mover philip chubb
0: i had him on my podcast recently but you know he he's all about this idea of free gains what, what is it what is it that you can do that gets you other things and uh one of the exercises that he prioritizes really highly is the tuck plunge push-up because essentially if you can carry your body weight and get your your hips level with your shoulder and then you know advanced plunge push-ups then you're already getting your bench press gains but unlike the bench press you're also training you know, controlling the shoulder in a different position, you know, straight arm strength and core strength, right. And get it all in one exercise. So why not? So yeah, I agree with you. And that's, that's, that's getting more complexity out of your training.
1: It'd be interesting with, I mean, in sports science, they have the GPS that gives you all the figures, you know, how fast did you run cuts like total player mm-hmm. load and those types of things. It. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what it would take or even if it's really even worth it to come up with something like this, but, that quantified i would just think even playing a game of basketball like if we quantified basketball in terms of cuts and jumps and change of directions Mm. and and (laughs) and versus a plyometric workout it'd just be interesting to see i mean there's so many little nuances to like tapping the heels really quickly and and all the little things that happen versus a more mechanical traditional plyometric session i love that though that concept though i
0: have a funny story i want to tell you i um So I listen to your podcast occasionally and you're always talking about like the best jumps that I do are after playing some pickup basketball, right? Best jumps that I do. So I always like to play with fun and and interesting warmups. And I used to play basketball and I love playing basketball. And last time we were talking to you, I like discovered that I could dunk after not, uh, not, 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 not working on it for a long time. So last year was insane year. And I ended up basically having to be physically sedentary from May through October because of work demands and I got way out of shape and couldn't touch the rim. It was terrible. <laughs>
1: it's a but, bad uh, feeling. I have I've I, I was on a three month layoff a long time ago and it was pretty bad when I got back to it. Oh, It's horrible.
0: So I've started training, right? And I've been training really hard and, you know, similar, my strength numbers are all up to pretty much where they were. My uh, kind of approach, my standing vert is as good as it was, but my approach jump isn't as good as it uh, was yet. It's more of a timing thing that needs to be uh, fixed right now. But anyways, that's sort of tangential. But the big thing was that I decided we were going to play pickup basketball as part of our warm up for parkour. So we went out to train. And so like I showed up early because I didn't want to like make the other guys do all the stuff that I was going to do. But I, like, I did some mace bell swinging. I did some medicine ball throwing. I did a bunch of uh, sled racks and some sprints. And then we, it was like, okay, cool. When the other guy showed up, I was like, okay, we're going to go play pickup basketball. But there's only three of us. And none of us have been playing basketball recently, so it was like, oh we'll play twenty one and then we start playing, and we realize like none of us can shoot, <laughs> so <we're> like okay, <laughs> we're gonna play to thirteen by twos and threes, so we we, we start playing, and uh and we, you know, I ended up winning, which is yeah yeah, 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 there you go it was fun, it was really fun, but oh my God, it was exhausting. There was so much cardio involved, like I'd gotten into parkour shape for like ten seconds of effort but uh but having to having to get through two people guarding me and pretty much be guarding all the time for the entirety of that game. I was, it was like, man, basketball gets you in shape. That's uh that's some intense, uh, some intense cardio, but, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting to see. I mean, I think that that's about the most difficult way to play basketball one on two, right. Yeah. <laughs> the entire time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're You're going to be going after, I mean, I know back when I was playing in high school, you'd set up certain drills like where the defense would have to work real hard. But I I was just literally thinking about it this week where the developmental load of basketball, because you have an emotional attachment to all sorts of human movements, some of which is jumping, but a lot of like, but everything's like fast. Like there's nothing that's like you, you might have some ground contacts that are 0.2 or 0.3 if it's a slow takeoff, but the majority of them are going to be really quick movements and it's all, and you can't not, I mean, your body's gonna be automatic because you have to perform the task of moving to the defense or you can't just stand there or someone's gonna look at you like, what are you, so it's, a, yeah. I think for me too, the more intellectual I get about training too, sometimes you almost take like, I mean, easy strength principle has changed my life as a coach, not, you know, or like when Stephen Kotler was on the show, 4%, don't go over 4%, you know, skill improvement or you're gonna be in a hole for a while. And I sometimes I almost take that so hard that, you almost don't appreciate when basketball overloads you because you have this emotional commitment to all your duties and you are going to get overloaded more, I think, than if you were to just kind of say, okay, here's the reps and sets and here's the workout and da da da. I'm sure parkour works on the same principle. And again, yeah. I, I mean, basketball, people do get overtrained. I mean, people in season lose their hops all the time. So I'm not I'm saying there is a limit to all that stuff, mm-hmm. but I'd imagine the emotional element of parkour probably digs it out of people too. It's like some of the big Ooh, jumps. Big time. Yeah, I,
0: I've been thinking a lot about quantifying parkour practice for a long time. You're talking about that GPS. I was like, how many jumps, how many ground ta- contacts, what kind of ground contacts are, am I putting in over a session? How would I look at that from session to session to be able to manage my workload and like, optimize it a little bit more? But I've, never, I've come up with some you know, ideas. I've never really implemented them and, and gone deep into it, but it, it has to be some sort of perceived rate of exertion thing. And you know, some kind of general thing, it's, it'd be, make it really a lot less fun if you are trying to do it in, in any other way, right? If you're thinking about every type of jump that you did and trying to categorize it and look at its physiological effect. But one thing that came out of that thought pattern is the neurological fatigue associated with a parkour session is not simply associated with, like, how many approach runs did you do? How big were the jumps that you were doing? It has a lot to do with like how much risk you're taking or how much, let's say, how threatened your nervous system felt by the movements that you're taking on. So when you do things at height, like you get an elevated arousal level that is very taxing to your nervous system and you can really feel it. The other thing about parkour is extremely eccentric, right? You're you're hitting all these movements that, that just have massive eccentric loads to your body. And so that can really, really dig into your recovery resources.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, especially if you kind of like got like even mildly injured trying something that was pretty hard or you fell even once, like I just think about the adrenaline output just to like Christian Thibodeau talks about basically your overtraining is adrenaline. Like if you release too much Mm -hmm. adrenaline, your nervous system is going to be done. And just to have to kind of get up for a big, a big to extend yourself, there's got to be even in the best athletes, like I know Steven Kotler said, like there is the fear is always there a little bit like. Granted, you've built up to that, you know, one foot or one inch at a time. But I imagine that if you're pushing yourself, there's probably you could spend a week recovering probably that edge or two. I mean, I'd I'd be curious as to, you know, maybe some or just like how training works with all the landings, too. Like you're probably doing days where there's 20, 30, like substantial depth landings or more. Yeah. I mean, the story is that, uh, like, you know, the extreme version of
0: this would be David Bell, who apparently used to wear a 25 pound weight vest and take a 17 foot drop a hundred (laughs) times. That's where the Russians got it from. I guess Maybe it was 12 feet, uh, but yeah, it was onto, uh, gravel. So it wasn't onto concrete or anything, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, he trained himself to an extraordinary level of, of being able to handle drops. And if you watch. You know, uh, I was trying to find that video and send it to you of him bouncing off, out of this enormous drop, and the the elasticity of the way that he did it was just absurd. Yeah, I mean, the human body is capable of a lot, but that that is you have to. He was young, extremely genetically gifted, right, and not doing anything else. And so, you know, I, I don't think that I could. I'm not sure that I could ever get to the point where I could do that at this stage of my life, right? Where I could I could handle the training load that would be associated with working up to that capacity. So yeah, the, the amount of foot contacts or the amount of heavier contacts is something that you really have to pay attention to in your training and the, the psychological side of it. It's interesting. I, so I moved up to Bellingham in January and I started kind of working on rebuilding my, my training practice. So uh, right away, I had a couple of uh, students and friends who were in the area and we I kind of negotiated with them and figured out a couple of days that we could train. So we're training Fridays and Sundays. And I normally train, say, two to two, two and a half hours, I guess. And so we start training. And then the first few training sessions are probably not as intense because I'm coming out of the new year and all that stuff's going on. And I'm moving my house. And then I was strength training once a week on Tuesdays. So I had, boom, really good schedule. So I used to... My first... Uh, first MMA gym in Bellingham was a uh, gym called West Coast Fight Club. And when they opened, I was one of the first students who went in there and got, in, uh, got involved in it. And my friend Kane was one of the other students. And so I, well, he's, he's now my friend, but I, I didn't see him for years. And then I ran into him at uh, the Flow State Summit a couple of years ago. And he's like, Hey, I've reopened a, a new gym and you know, we're calling it West Coast Fight Club and kind of continuing the tradition. You should drop by the next time you're in town. So two years go by and I moved to town and I reached out to him and, uh, you know, started talking to him about some of my ideas and applying sort of the involvement play concepts in this. And he was intrigued, so I went up there and started training. So now I've got MMA once a week, and all of a sudden I was just like every every week I'm just like consistently making progress. You know, I'm tra- testing my strength training every six weeks, and it's like, you know, I'm getting really good, consistent gains across all of it, feeling really good. And, uh, and I was like, hmm, I feel like I'm I'm in a deep enough flow state that there's going to be a dark side to this, right? Uh, that was my perception. I was like, hmm, this isn't going to last forever. I'm going to have to enjoy some winter to deal with this summer. And so the other thing that happened is that there's a, a gymnastics gym that I used to work for years ago. So I reached out to them and arranged something where I'm, I'm working with their staff on teaching them parkour. And so we're getting access to the gym and my kids get, uh, get classes. So then we're, we've gone the last few Sundays to the gymnastics gym and we've been training. And so my trainings have just gotten a little bit longer and a little bit more intense, and a little bit longer and a little <laughs> bit more intense. And then uh, I hadn't had a chance to spar with Kane, who's a former pro fighter. And so I, I did my, my two and a half hours of, of parkour training and I walked over to the gym and I got the chance to train with Kane for the first time. And we ended up going pretty hard because, you know, it's the first, first chance to really test each other out a little bit. And, you know, I really have a hard, it's hard to find guys who are comparably skilled in martial arts and especially of a comparable size. I'm six foot two, 220 pounds. So finally, like we did it. And I it was a great round, right? Uh, great couple of rounds. And then I went a couple of rounds with the boxing coach. And then like the next week, you know, you can just feel the doldrums arrive. And I'm supposed to get to my next, like my next set of tests for where, for how my progression is on my strength training is coming up. And I was like, I got to, I got to give myself an extra rest day. I got to cut back. I got to drop my strength training this week because otherwise the body's not going to be ready for this test. So the the definitely be getting kicked in the face, right? <laughs> and dealing with a pro fighter after like flying through the air and doing, you know, flips over 12-foot gaps, right? That's a, that's a unique set of demands on a nervous system, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> getting kicked in the fa- yeah, how does how many times do <laughs> you get kicked in the face and and how does that affect you and overtraining? <laughs> 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 if you got kicked in uh, the face at the end of a pl- set of plyometrics, how would that impact your recovery yeah, yeah. from Yeah, two hours.
0: So I was pretty proud of that. I was like, Ah, not many people who can who can uh, who can flip with who are 39 years old and can do uh, can ke- you know keep up with like you know? I guess uh, my friend Sid, who's one of my training partners, he competed on World Chase Tag. You could say pro parkour athletes on one side and then pro MMA athletes on the <laughs> other. So that's
1: fun. If you've listened to this show for a while, then you might understand the power of observing mother nature when it comes to working with athletes. This might be to the point where I've worked with many elite coaches who have spent time watching animals, for example, to make biomechanical inroads to working with athletes on how we can work better. You can really never go wrong with observing nature in action. I've made a similar jump in the world of nutrition, where I really now look to what nature can provide us from a supplementation standpoint. If you would have asked me about herbalism five years ago, I would have just thought about the ginkgo biloba capsules at the local drugstore as some sort of low-grade health alternative. But these days, I've found my way into performance herbalism, featuring high-grade, immaculately sourced herbs that that serve very specific functions to my health, vitality, and even my strength development. With performance herbalism, Lost Empire Herbs is my go-to company for all things herbs. Two-times podcast guest Logan Christopher who is also a very accomplished strongman amongst other things, is their CEO. And I use several of Lost Empire Herbs formulas and tinctures in my total nutrition regimen and I've achieved great results. Would absolutely recommend it to anybody. If you want to check out my favorite herbs as well as learn a lot more about them, as well as get 15% off your order, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly where you can see some of my top herbs such as shilajit resin, which was mentioned by Grant Fowler a few episodes back. So head on over to LostEmpireHerbs.com slash JustFly for 15% off some of my favorite herbs for health and performance. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like those superstars competitions with different... I, I mean, I like <laughs> I, I like actually the idea of like getting different... I don't know. It's, the YouTube viral videos are all like, it's like powerlifter versus bodybuilder because this yeah. is what we identified to be fitness. But to me, oh, more yeah. what would be... And it's always the ones I've watched of that. It's always kind of rigged towards one or the other athlete. It's hard to really like it's hard to make it fair, but I think that Mm -hmm. if it's all primal movement, I think you can be a lot more creative with what's ended up happening. So maybe that'll be a TV show someday. I think that would be, (laughs) that would be interesting for sure. But on the topic of martial arts, I did want to get into movement. Like movement quality has been something that's always been on my radar. I think it can be sometimes kind of esoteric to talk about it. With really masterful teachers, sometimes it's best to just be like hands-on in the session. It's almost easier to experience sometimes than to, to discuss formally, but I know you have a ton of experience in martial arts and with some really great teachers in the world, just movement quality. And so for you, how much of your practice, or uh, maybe that's not the good way to frame the question, but for you, uh, what is your take on movement quality? Like, how do you spend time in improving it? Like people who maybe just don't have, if there is our parkour athletes who just move in like a, a manner that you would find just not, not acceptable, not rhythmic, not X, Y, Z. And do you take yeah. time out of parkour itself to work on movement quality? For sure.
0: So I feel like there's something fruitful in, in, in talking a little bit about the balance between the martial arts for me and parkour, because I, like, I've, I've spent more of my career, I guess, professionally around parkour, but I started parkour when I was 23 and I started martial arts when I was six years old. So I felt like I struggled to learn a lot of the movements in parkour and that I was awkward and that my movement quality was very poor for a long time in parkour. And I feel like I'm very natural as a as a martial artist, right? And it's harder for me to comprehend the difficulties that people have in, in martial arts. Like I can pick up how to hit someone with power and how to generate that torque and that twist and those rotations and the relaxation in my arm And, you know, utilizing my body and falling into creating power. And all of that just is, it's just intuitive for me. And I see people and they're like, they're so lost. They just, they're like uncoordinated. I don't know. For some reason, I wanted to say baby ducks. I don't know if baby ducks are uncoordinated. They, They, like people just look lost at sea, right? I don't know how to describe it. Like, you ask someone to punch and they just look so uncoordinated and so awkward and stiff and I'm not it's like it's just confusing to me right or to kick but in parkour it's it's easier for me to do that so i think it's always there's always why doesn't someone move well is always an interesting question right so one reason someone doesn't move well is just because they're not very familiar with what you're asking them to do if you're if you're trying to coordinate A pattern that you're not used to, it's usually gonna be ugly. Your body's gonna be too tense, it's gonna be shooting out more neural information than it needs, right? It takes time to kind of become efficient in the movement. I was talking to one of my friends who said that like he really likes burnout drills for punching because you just have to keep punching and punching and punching the bag because the fatigue will teach you to be efficient, Hmm. right? You can't keep punching and keep that level of tension. So sometimes you just need to practice the pattern, but then sometimes there's something that is—it's actually wrong with your movement, right? I'll tell you the story, but basically, like I sprained my ankle severely playing basketball eight times on each ankle, and I think that when I came into parkour, like I didn't really have feet. Right? I had these disconnected stumps at the end of my legs, and so my strategy for getting around that was to kind of land on my arches with my feet turned out. And I had enough strength in my glutes and my hips and everything to be powerful despite that. But like my strides were really short compared to what I was capable of. And there was something awkward and janky about the way that I moved. So I wanted to get rid of it. Like I could see that other people moved more fluidly and that it was more aesthetic the way that other people moved. And I was also suffering injuries and knee problems and I think it was associated with this. So I, I worked really specifically on like being able to open up the capacity for internal rotation of my tibia. That turned out to be one of the master keys for recovering the capacity of my lower limb was actually just tibial rotation drills. Hmm. So that was useful. I spent a lot of time barefoot. I did a lot of like ground flow and weird stuff that allowed me to play around on my feet and just develop sensitivity without... The environment threatening me and then the other aspect of it that sh- which i think was connected because these all kind of happened around the same time and it's long enough ago that it's hard to remember but i ran into the ideas of sparta performance science are you familiar with them yeah 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 and you know they're, they're they do this thing where they they test all the athletes they work with on force plates and they basically develop a profile of the athlete is this an athlete who Essentially, you can be good at creating stiffness in your body. You can be good at producing force quickly, or you can be, and you can be good at producing force over a longer period of time. You know, this is kind of aligned with the ideas that you've talked about, about creating yielding athletes. And they initially thought there'd be sort of one ideal athletic blueprint. But what they found over time is that athletes adopt or Adopt specific strategies based on what's optimal for their sport or are attracted to specific or excel in specific sports, specific positions, because of which kind of areas they're stronger. In. So rotational athletes need to be really good at yielding and creating force over a longer period of time. They need to be able to disassociate the hips and the shoulders, whereas reactive athletes tend to need more stiffness and more quickness. So the problem is that when you're excessively developed in any area too far in relationship to another area, you become more injury prone. So they found that based on their statistical tests, that if you have a 15, percentile, 15 point percentile difference in any of your attributes, that your injury rates will skyrocket. And based on which is weak and which is strong, you can predict what kind of injuries you have. So when I went in there, I scored, I think I scored 63rd percentile for their elite athlete pool for um, stiffness. And then I was 50th for quickness and 47th for time of force production. There's a huge gap between my weakest and my strongest attribute. And at the time, I was training almost exclusively using the deadlift as my primary training modality. And they're like, well, the deadlift will drive the very thing that you're already good at while leaving the thing that you most need unaddressed. So they took me off the deadlift and told me, look, based on your neurology and everything, you should probably never deadlift again. And you should split squat, uh, split squat, overhead squat. And, you know, hip thrusts are kind of the, the big things that they used to, at the, or used at that point to drive that attribute. And so I, I adopted what they were doing and I made split squats the center of my training. And then all of a sudden it was like, I, I didn't have to train nearly as much and I performed much better and was way more injury resilient. And I got off of that foot pattern that I was stuck in that was really not serving me. So the reason I tell that story is basically this idea that when you're working with a novice athlete, a lot of times the answer is just that they need to do the thing more. But when that doesn't fix it, you have to ask like, well, why isn't self-organization working? And then you can look at, What's their injury patterns? Are they training in a way that's, that's actually driving them away from the attribute that they want to work, uh, work on, right? Last night, I was, uh, I was wor- working with my MMA fighter, so I'm working with, right? And this guy's like really struggling with the Kumuras. We're working on Kumuras, which is a shoulder lock, which takes your shoulder into internal rotation. And, um, you know, it's just hurting him, right? So well, what does he do? He's a, he's a construction worker, right? He's working with his hands all day. So how does he strengthen? He does lots of, lots of bench pressing curls, right? And his shoulders are just stuck here, right? So I get in there and I start massaging his pec minor and I do sleeper holds and external rotations and, you know, open up his shoulders. It's like, that's, he's, jiu-jitsu will make him better at jiu-jitsu, but it's not going to make his shoulders function, right? And parkour would help, but it could also hurt him. So you have to, you know, as a coach, you want to be able to say, okay, this is, this is, I have enough awareness of his movement quality and what's going on to see, like, look, this guy's shoulders are stuck in a deeply internally rotated position. He's got nowhere else to go. And he's just banging into the end range of his, of his tissues every time that he gets stuck here. And he's got an immense amount of tension that's stuck in that system because he's got nothing that's, that's releasing that tension. So hopefully that made sense. I feel like I went all over the place, but but that's my basic prescription is start with the whole foods and then dig down into how you build ways to strengthen the weaknesses or the the holes that are that are developing in, in that athlete's profile.
1: Yeah. And that's no worries about kind of going around because I think it actually does all come together. This actually fits with a question I had at the end of my list for you, which is basically so we can this will cover that too. And the question is basically how much extra stuff do you feel you need to do for what you do. I mean, doing parkour, you had mentioned, I think this was a couple of years ago as you had, I think, just done parkour pretty much and weren't really squatting or lifting and you were dunking better than you had before or when you were training for it. And so it's almost like when people are coaching, they oftentimes have this one technique in mind or, you know, you have your one prescriptive lift you really like, or your one rehab method you really like and everyone gets that. But I do think there's a lot of merit to doing the least amount of extra stuff and just seeing how long, like even you said you're doing gymnastics and I think a little MMA, right? And you were, you were just going up, up, up. And I think there's something to just letting someone progress without putting all this extra stuff in just because it gives you a chance to see, I think how far you can go. And it tells you a little more information about that person before that you have to throw the whole system at them. So I guess what I'll say is this, well, I'll, I'll say a few things. I actually want to bring it back to what you just said and kind of rounding that and circling that. out. It is almost like movement technique. Uh, you talked about there's like the quality of it, but you talked a lot in terms of the compensation patterns you pick up o- over time, um, like you had turned your feet out. So if we're writing this out on a napkin or something, yeah. I, it's almost like you have your c- compensations. So that's like technique one. You have your... Almost like I almost almost call it with the Sparta test. I've been getting a ton into people who have learned under Bill Hartman lately and like your structure, like Pat Davidson, Kyle Dobbs, David Gray. It's like almost the next thing is like the structure. Like if you've been just like you said, you just been doing deadlift a ton, maybe that changes the structure of your ribs to be more of a narrow infrasternal angle. And so that's making everything stiffer versus if you only squatted and that's all you did, it was you might be you know on that force end of thing. So it's like you got your compensations and even with compensations it's interesting i've I've been working with a young female runner recently who has a lot of knee issues and her toes are really turned in like the opposite of yours and Mm -hmm. so the you know the first time she was in a group session just kind of you know asked her some basic questions second time we ran an individual session and she said she what did like a ton of jump roping like i was like semi-competitive i don't know what exactly but i was like yeah i think i can see that turn your toes in you know you see those people so I guess that's why you're, you know, so you got those two. But the third thing, I, if I had to kind of build this trifecta and the thing I was curious with, like the martial arts, I, I've seen like Joseph and Fighting Monkey with this, do this kind of thing. And I've I've had other coaches with almost, it's almost like the rhythmic quality or the, this the almost, it's hard to describe, right? It's like the rhythm, it's the essence of what you're doing. It's the ability to almost turn your forebrain off and let your body move fluidly, which again, I think you know, you've said you have to be familiar with what you're doing. But we've all seen those athletes who just can't... It's almost like you watch an athlete. It's like you, you try to figure out where's your intention? Where is their mental intention while they're doing this? And almost trying to look at that first. I'm just curious, yeah, what your thoughts are on that component of that equation.
0: I mean, rhythm is, is immense, right? And it's in everything, right? So when you're, doing, when you're fighting, right, or you're doing martial arts, you're essentially trying to recognize the rhythmicality of your opponent's movement right so you're you're shifting your weight back and forth you know always tend to, to move into a rhythm right your hands are moving in and out tends to a rhythm when you throw a punch that's a it's a cyclical movement right so there's a time signature of when the punch goes out and when it comes back there's a time that that takes right and um in traditional sword fighting they call that a beat right so you're is it a beat or a measure, right? How many times, you know, like a movement can take place in a single measure or how many movements can you get in a single measure? So you're trying to figure out what's the measure of the opponent? What's the timing that they have? How do I interrupt their timing? How do I make, how to hide my rhythm, hide the way that I'm moving uh, from them? And there's so much sensitivity to it, right? Because if I initiate a punch, right, I want that punch to land and I want my hand to, to be hard and my body to be hard as the punch lands. But any time that it's hard before it lands is slowing me down and wasting my energy. So I want to be able to, to hit them and penetrate that through that force. So that's a sensitivity thing. So I'm just thinking about your world and sprinting. Right. like, how sensitive is the foot when it's hitting the ground? Right. And, and what is the feeling of hitting the ground and knowing, given the cleat that you're wearing or the spikes that you're wearing, the surface that you're on, right, and the 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 phase that you're in, when the appropriate time is to fire the specific thing that you're trying to fire, like that's so much of actually what makes an athlete really fast. Like it's it's, it's so easy to think like okay, you know, take this guy who who has a 300 pound squat and give him a 400 pound squat. Now there's more force, and he's going to apply more force to the ground. It's not that simple, right? <laughs> there's a lot more to it, right? the timing of force production is massive. It's, it's, it's the harmony of the body as it's hitting the ground and that, that ability to find that moment. And those things just come, you, you have to do things to get those things, right? Like there's no amount of, of strength training that will make your, you have real foot sensitivity, right? And if you take even something like sprinting, sprinting isn't cutting and changing direction and being able to read an opponent and you know it's like in some ways Tyreek Hill is a more impressive runner to me than Usain Bolt right because Tyreek Hill has to solve a lot of more complex problems which I mean I think what Usain Bolt does is incredible in complexity in its own way right like I think he has extraordinary rhythmicality and extraordinary sensitivity. And that's part of what made him such an extraordinary athlete, right? He knew how to utilize his structure to produce power on the ground. But Tyreek Hill has to do that while a bunch of immense people try to, to smash him. Right. And the strategies that are optimized are are, are really different. It's interesting. I mean, Tyreek Hill, I think ran like a 10, 12 in the hundred, which is fast, really, really fast. Right. But when he's in the NFL, I believe that 80% of the ground time that he's running, he has one foot or the other on the ground, which is completely different from what you would want to do to be optimally fast on the track. But that allows him to control and steer his movement so much more effectively. He always has that ability to subtly change the way he's applying force to the ground so that he can manipulate his body, change direction easily, fake things, accelerate, decelerate. All those are, are aspects of it. And all of that ultimately has to do with the felt sense of rhythm and your ability to manipulate that rhythm.
1: I like what you said about the punching and like every second that fist is tense that it shouldn't be your wasting energy. And <clears throat> like if we're relating this to sprinting too, it's, I mean, you can't see it in the foot. Because if someone has their mm-hmm. shoes on, you can't see what their foot's doing. But one of the things that Darian Barr taught me very early is you know what the foot's doing by watching the hand if someone's running. Yeah. And I just I then from that point on, I just found it extremely interesting to observe sprinters or even runners, but sprinters like coming out of the blocks or running at a top end speed. And the, you know if those people listening, you can try this. And I'll have groups. When I'm demonstrating things to groups, I'll have them do this as I'll say alternate just jogging with straight leg bounce. And just do that, you know, maybe 20 meters you jog, 20 meters straight leg bound. And just notice what your hands want to do. And mm-hmm. you'll find, you should find, if you're connected well enough, hopefully, um, that your hands want to, when the, you do the straight leg bounding, they, that your fingers want to like splay out and be fairly rigid. You'll, you'll feel a wave of rigidity actually go into your fingers because that's what they want to do to be rigid and, and reciprocate that straight leg bound. But if you try to sprint that whole time with your fingers splayed like that, and you do see some athletes like that, because yeah. they've almost had this paradigm imprinted in them of everything. You know, we talk about, you know, yin and yang or like the machine versus a complex and all those things. It's almost like they have been imprinted with almost this machine force, 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 force. But there's no releasing of the force. There's no timing. It's almost like everything is so, even when we talk pretension, like that can almost be a compensation in some regards because you're getting re- stuff ready too, too much too early. There's always the right amount. I mean, again, I'm not trying to. I'm a strength coach, like my life is optimized force production. I believe in getting stronger, but it's interesting to watch. Like, I just take that with, you say the punch to watch people's hands and notice is there tension in the wrong place in the stride versus, and bolt is a good example. And, you know, in just running in a straight line, you see his hand at the top of the front swing of his arm when his hands close to his face. And it's like, it's kind of relaxed. It's kind of chilling. Yep. You watch people who are probably going to pull a hamstring and get hurt. You see their fingers like, yes, exactly. You got it. They're splayed out and they're like just too much rigidity too early. So, and you know, maybe the solution for them is learn to dance. more. I don't know. Like I'm, so that's where I was curious, like, you know, being through maybe like some of the, I've heard of people doing like hurdle drills on a rhythm. I mean, parkour is probably, it's always different, right? I mean, there's nothing, it's not like we're in the 110 hurdles. It's not like there's one, two, three, go, it's always going to be different. So I don't, but like you said, martial arts, there's always a, you know, the opponent and you got that rhythm that trying to match. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: it always matters, right? So in within parkour, like I talk about, people always talk about flow. This movement, this this athlete moves with good flow. Well, what does that mean? Right. So I've been trying to break it down. What do we mean by flow? And how do we actually address what might be the missing piece? How do we take like, that just looks good. Well, why does it look good? How do we make that kind of invisible stuff visible? And so I've come up with a sort of set of subcomponents of flow and parkour. Right? So rhythm, right? So imagine that you're, you're standing a certain distance away from an obstacle and you have to go over that obstacle. So there's going to be an optimal set of steps leading you into that. And you want to be able to recognize how much force to put into the ground on each step so it puts you in the right position to do the next step. So for a hurdler, they have a very set amount of steps and they need to be operating at a very, very high level of force. But imagine that the hurdles are actually very totally variable in every race that you have a different set of distances along the hurdles. So now the athletes are going to have to Focus so much more on coordination and being able to control the rhythm of the steps coming into each thing. Right. So how do I how do I steer? So we talk about direction of of movement, displacement. So basically, it's horizontal versus vertical. Rhythm, structure of the body. How do we maintain our structure? Risk management and orientation. Those are the central aspects of flow. Right. So if you're trying to move through a complex environment you want to move in such a way that you're not creating vectors of force or sort of momentum inertia that's not contributing to the direction that you want to go. So very often so, like really classic, like most people have probably done this. You, you go up to a small obstacle, right? Like a handrail, and you want to get to the other side. So you put both hands on the rail and you jump your legs to the, uh, around the side of your hand. If you do this action, what's going to happen is that you're your hips swinging up to one side of your hands is going to create inertia that is going to be going, you know, parallel to the hands, right? But you're trying to go perpendicular. You're trying to continue to go forward. So now you have to still the motion that's happening, going sideways before you can start moving forwards. So we have to control that, that directionality, right? So classically, when you're learning parkour, for instance, we'll be doing a lazy vault. So you put one hand on the object, you swing your legs around and you catch with the other hand. Most athletes will, will do this without being able to catch with the other hand initially. And they often don't understand why you want that other hand to catch. What the other hand does is it counters. It's a, so your body is circling, circling in one direction and the hand swinging back to the object is circling the other direction which nets out the total side-to-side motion, and allows you to now have control of the direction that you're moving. Also, having both hands on the object gives you the opportunity to push and create the motion that you're trying to control. So if you're trying to move sideways, right? If you're trying to cut a diagonal, you don't want to swing your hand back down on a lazy. You just want to go around and keep going. And you'll see athletes make that mistake because they've been taught that it's correct to do the lazy vault by swinging the hand back. They don't actually understand what the role of the hand swinging back is. So That's directionality. The next aspect is displacement, right? So that's how much are you going up and down, okay? So again, a hurdler wants their hips to be as low over the hurdle as possible because taking it any higher is a waste of energy. And also it means that there's more time that you're decelerating before you hit the ground and are able to accelerate with that foot on the ground again, as well as now your body's going to hit the ground with more force. So the same thing is true every time that you do a parkour movement. Right. If you're if you're going over an object and you want to get to the other side, um, is your body being displaced more than is necessary? Or you could talk about going under an object. Imagine you're you're ducking down under something. So to be efficient and fluid, you don't want to have to duck any deeper than you need. to. So you need the sensitivity of your motion to recognize that. And then the rhythm aspect, which which I explained, right, like you have to all, all of those things essentially end up contributing to rhythm. It's because it's this ability to recognize how each movement contributes to it so i think of it kind of like like music every sort of set of movements or solution to a problem is like a set of beats right and you can have the optimal set of beats or you can have noisy extra beats that aren't contributing to the overarching kind of the harmony of the piece and then as you're moving over the objects, you're trying to control your structure so that you're always in positions that allow you to apply force to the ground and continue to move forward. So how you're able to organize that structural, you know, relationship between you and the objects. And then you need to make a decision about well, are you are going to do? the more difficult thing that maybe gets you there faster, but potentially you're more likely to fail. That's risk management. And the last thing is, you know, we can only move when we can perceive the environment. So if you move in such a way that it, it causes you to lose your ability to perceive effectively, then your flow is going to be broken. So what you see a lot with with novice athletes is that, that their eyes will hard focus on every object they go over, and then there'll be a perceptual lag before they can then organize themselves to go over the next object. This same ability would apply in a, like a team sport context, right? So if I'm dribbling past you, but then I'm going to have to get past the center as well, right? If my whole attention goes to you, then I'm going to have to hesitate and slow my body down before I can now produce a solution to Euro step around the center and make it to the hoop, right? And so that's, that's like flow of your perceptual system as you're going through it. And again, it's like also a timing thing, right? Being able to be in the right place at the right time, being able to be paying attention to the right thing at the right time. So that's a bit about the, the evolvement of play theory of flow, which I think kind of connects to the idea you're trying to dig into there.
1: Yeah. That I know what the, like the perception, the speed of perception thing I've, I've talked with strength coaches in the past on like training tennis players. And they actually, they just worked on the tennis player's speed and that tennis player actually got almost too fast, was running too fast for what was needed. They, they, the yep. feedback was I'm faster, but I'm like messing up more balls right now because those two things hadn't gotten in sync yet. So I've, I've heard the same thing for uh, even soccer, like ending up offsides players who ended up offsides more yeah. because they just got caught in the linear speed too much without the perceptual coupling and the yeah, yeah. team sports, a complex deal.
0: Yeah. So I had a, I had an athlete who, um, who I was training as really talented young athlete and, you know, he was, you know, like 14 years old, he was jumping like over nine feet standing. And so I was like, well, there's no s- scholarships for parkour. So we should get him into a sport where he might potentially get a scholarship. So I had started training with a um a local, you might know him, his name is Mike Cunliffe. Yeah, runs Seattle Speed. Yeah, I've Hanna heard of him. Hanna yeah, Hannah Cunliffe was six-time national champion, something like that. Interestingly, you know, the first thing that he talked about was getting better rhythm in the athletes that uh that he worked with. You know, you gotta do A skips, B skips with rhythm. It was always about with rhythm, right? So I sent my, I sent him to train with, with Mike and he came back and he was too fast. Right? <laughs> every, every time that he put his foot down on an approach jump, like he was just going too fast. So like every jump that he went to, he would bounce off because he was always coming into it too fast. And it was kind of dangerous, right? It was like, you know, it's like ha- suddenly having a, a Bugatti, right? And it's like, you know, you, you tap the ac- accelerator and you're going way faster than you expected. And now you don't know what to do. So I've definitely seen that with, with athletes coming into parkour. And if your explosiveness is sort of beyond your coordination ability, that can really be damaging. Another thing is just being a, an athlete is, is attuned to their own, you know, there's always, it's always a relationship to the environment and the, and the organism. And if your action potentials change substantially enough, you can actually lose attunement. So, Yeah interesting stuff i don't know i don't know where you want to go from there
1: yeah i well i have a few other questions that are related to the movement quality i I will say too the last thing with rhythm is one thing i've noticed you know having been working mostly with college athletes for the last you know decade and now i'm working with some younger athletes and it's interesting to see how like from a robustness perspective even the rhythm of maybe being able to maintain like a tempo on a single leg squat like be like hey i want you to do this (laughs) Yeah, I I ask a more developed athlete who has good sense of internal timing. Okay, I want you to do this on a three oh three tempo, three seconds up, three seconds down. I won't use a clock if I don't have to at first. Like, let's just see if you can do that, or I'll count. And it seems like the athletes who are more uh, predisposed to injury, they just don't like. They just don't have. They just have figured out. They're just kind of flying through the movement, and I think there's something to. I mean, we tend to think of rhythm too. And rightly so with like, you know, even like the rhythmic A skip, B skip drills or rhythmic hurdle drills or those rhythmic hops. But I think there is even a, there's something to be said in my opinion about just being able to control on a, even internal rhythm of movement, one, two, three, four, five, going through the range of motion controlling. Cause I've seen a discrepancy between athletes who are more and less robust. And just like, you could call them like in mastery of their bodies with just being able to hold counts on slow, boring stuff. We'd oftentimes take, I think, like a 505 squat. Oh, that's not explosive. That's not excellent. But there's, I mean, I've actually increased my own vertical jump using that type of stuff before. And I think I just, it was just, it wouldn't work forever. But the gains in control, I think, were really beneficial.
0: I never really played with tempo. I know, you know, a lot of the sort of the Poliquin lineage loves tempo. Um, And I've been very influenced by elements of Poliquin lineage, but I haven't really gone into that. But it makes sense to me. And, you know, I, I, I've done dance. Right. And I think that that's huge. And I think that, uh, you know, you, you were asking me about Yosef Frusik from Fighting Monkey. And, you know, I, I actually asked him this question because I felt like his understanding of rhythm is is better than my understanding of rhythm. Right. Because he's he's been a choreographer. Right. He's a professional choreographer. That's what he does. Sort of like how do we help athletes have better rhythm? And Yosef's a mystery man. Right. So you ask him a question today you get one answer you ask him the same question tomorrow you might get a different answer but uh what he talked about the first time that i talked to him about that was like when you find an athlete in rhythm break the rhythm and then make them find it again Hmm. right so his big thing was challenging it forcing the athlete to do it and i think there's some utility to that i don't think that's the the solution always right i think um you know some of the stuff that I've been absorbing from like the perception-action literature and the the idea of cognitive load. It's like you want to you want to manage the athlete's cognitive load. Basically, you want them to be optimally challenged, and maybe optimal challenge is more variable than we think. Like uh, um, a bunch of people have been pointing out, Andrew Huberman to me recently, and he's been talking about how like your your neuroplasticity jumps up mo- directly after having a feeling of frustration, um, which actually maybe that aligns with with Yosef's work because they do this, these coordinations, right? They're like, essentially they make you do really fast paced choreography where you're bound to fail. And then they just keep you doing it for a really long time. But yeah, maybe that, that's stimulating a huge amount of, um, of brain growth and uh, neuroplasticity. But I also think there's some real utility in like a prolonged access to the flow state right, and being able to find it. So you can play with both. The other thing he, he, he mentioned in one of the seminars was like, just everybody should do African tribal dance, like just go do some kind of tribal, highly rhythmic dance and it will improve you as an athlete. And I had a, a conversation recently with uh, Simon Thacker, which I think you may find really interesting. We're talking about the role of dance within the idea of the adaptive athlete and what exactly dance is, because it's like, I, I, it's easy. To to, to describe why an adaptable athlete might want to be able to do parkour or might want to be able to do martial arts or even like be able to escape, evade, hit, throw, all the things that come out of like team sport. But why dance? And, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes out of the conversation around self-expression and around essentially producing like emotional states in the athlete and how much those emotional states impact the capacity to grow and adapt. But one of the things that we noticed we talked about is the idea that like so often really great athletes have a dance background and fighters seem to do well in dance and dance often sort of exists within fighting circles We am talking about israel adesanya right israel adesanya you know he just lost but still he's one of the greatest mma fighters in the world and my understanding is that israel adesanya didn't start training mma until he was 18 years old but he was a hip-hop dancer wow. so he did tons and tons of hip-hop dance at a high level and then at 18 years old he walks into a into a fight gym and takes a fight a week later. And you see him you see a, you see that aspect of him. I was watching him in this fight and it literally looks like he's doing the robot in order to create to create a, an illusion, right? He's trying to manipulate the perceptual system of his opponent by shifting the way that he's moving outside of the norm, right? And breaking that rhythm aspect. So here, here's an argument for the utility of dance. And I think, you know, you've been talking, you, you mentioned earlier on the podcast, like I think dance is awesome for warm up, and yeah, totally agree. Like add some, add some, some rhythm components. And I've done it with the parkour stuff. Like I've, I've gone out to the trees and just been like, I'm going to try to basically move my weight with the rhythm of the song. And so I'll start with the weight placements, just like, right. Just, just on the ground next to the thing. And then I'll start like tapping it with my feet or tapping with my hands and just start to feel the rhythm. And then I'll start trying to move it. Right. And then I'll start trying to catch the moods of the song. And it's like, if it's like a big crescendo, it's like be moving high in the air, flowing through the air. Right. If it's down, it's like, boom, down to the objects, right. Hitting those things and playing with them. The definitely some of the coolest, like flow state experiences have come out of that. I
1: love that. I like, um, man, that's such a cool anecdote with the, a hip hop dancer who turned MMA, yeah. I, one thing I notice about uh, athletes sometimes who have a dance background is just this, my perception is they have, like I talked about the hands before and mm-hmm. it, to me, it seems like they tend to have a very wide array of the ways uh, I've talked to other jump coaches about this. You could have like Spock hand, I'm kind of doing this in my hands right now, mm-hmm. but like different hand or pinky finger out or whatever to like the pinky yeah. toe up, like there's these different manipulations and they seem to be very masterful on the way they manipulate their hands to meet the situation like if it's like jumping over a high hurdle or something like that compared to perhaps um, an average population. And you mentioned the African dance and I, I don't remember the ethnicity. I feel like it's multiple ethnicities. I've been sent this video of this like kind of dance this person's doing where it's just like extremely rapid heel taps. There's always like this rapid, they'll put it in the show notes if I can find it, but there's, Mm -hmm. it's like literally this person's tapping their heel and moving their foot around like circular motions and they gotta be tapping like five to second, seven times a second. It's, like it's mind blowing how much and fast these feet are firing in this little space. And they're able to coordinate the rest of their body in that context. It's almost like playing defense on someone times five, like speed up times five. Just And so I, I agree with you. I definitely actually have to watch maybe more of that dancing, too, to kind of get that in my head. But I, I definitely believe it. So I know we only have a couple of minutes left and. Maybe uh, if you just want to give a quick answer to this, because I, I think it fits in with the movement thing, but I've seen you do like animal forms, am, animal flow. I think it's part of fighting or just part of movement in general. Do you utilize like crawling or different types of rolling and animal type movements as part of your warrant for parkour?
0: I don't tend to think of them as animal movements, right? Like, so some of my students, uh, one of my students, Kyle Cock, he comes from uh, the wilderness awareness school and they have these, this series of animal forms that they do. And we've played with that in the seminars. But I, I just think of it as personally for myself as ground flow, right? And my background with that stuff comes from like parkour's had it for a long time. Like you have to get on the ground to go under things if you're going to go under things. And going up things often, you know, you're moving onto your hands uh, onto all fours, uh, getting down things, various ways of like dealing with force dissipation. We have rolls, we have like butt rolls, we have all these techniques. And then I've done Capoeira, I've done Sistema, and I've done Modern Dance, which all have ground aspects to them. So I find the ground is very is very useful as a way of training things, right? And I see connections with it, right? Like, to me, a burpee is actually a progression for a conwell. Because fundamentally, like in a burpee, you're, one of the things that you're doing is you're explosively moving the, the hands or the feet to where the hands were, right? And which is what's happening when you're vaulting up on top of something. So, I, I love. Recently, I really like bear walks as part of my warm up because I find them to be really good for my back. Right, I find that my my hips and shoulders and everything just feel good after I do some bear walks. I think that like some of the stuff that Tim Anderson does with original strength is really great sort of uh, stuff. But I think that um, for me, you get the same benefits, and it's a little bit more interesting by just doing modern dance groundwork, right? Like you have all these these twisting, rolling, swinging, squatting, changing direction movements within the modern dance tradition, but you get this aesthetic music-oriented aspect of it that's really enjoyable. So I learned that stuff, like I said, from dance classes, but also from Tom Wexler, who's a really amazing movement teacher as well, and from Fighting Monkey. And so I'll definitely add that to my warm-ups and, and play with it pretty regularly, uh, depending on how I feel, But a lot of times, especially if I'm feeling a little bit like my back or my hip or something or my knees are not not as happy, or even my ankles it's, it's a weird thing, actually. I found that dancing a achy body part fixes it. Yes. <laughs> right? Like my, my ankle will feel like something is weird, and I'll like put music on, and I'll start trying to move my ankle around to the music. And it, it's like, a, it's magic sometimes for letting go of that injury. So yeah, so I'll, I'll do that specifically where, if I'm looking, if I'm trying to get out of like feeling uncomfortable in my body. If my body feels comfortable and I'm, and I'm just good, like I'll just do whatever I'm going to do, right? I'll walk in and like start doing parkour, right? Start doing martial arts. But when there's, when there's something that I'm studying in my body or trying to release, I do find those to be particularly useful. So like uh, I had a little bit of back pain when I went out to train last Sunday. And so I was playing with like laying on my back and swinging my leg, like changing this, swinging my leg to one side and then the other side. I don't, I don't know how to describe that, but, but imagine that you're laying on your back and you're trying to drag one foot along the ground, like slide it along the ground until it's sort of parallel to your hips. And then you change direction and go the other way. And then take that action and let it swing you up into a shin box. And then you can take that action and let it swing you up into a shin box. And from the shin box, you can transition out into like a cossack. And then you can do a leg swing of some kind and use that to come up. And then maybe I would work that into like a, an, uh, like a capoeira. Ooh, right? And then as my body gets more and more comfortable than that, that capoeira ooh, becomes a, a major little compasso, which is a spinning hook kick with your hands on the ground. And like my body is sort of m- m- building itself up from movement on the ground to more and more acrobatic movement. And then I can become a, a butterfly or an aerial. And then, you know, then, then, then now I'm like, I'm feeling good and I can go flip and, and do the stuff that I want to do.
1: It's like almost like a Paul Cater when he was on this podcast. He I think sometimes we don't have science to officially confirm these things through these intuitions. Mm-hmm. But to him, like warming up, doing just I mean, he would often do just like speed ladder drills to music. Or sprint drills to music or crawls to music. And to him, he called it just a tuning of the body. It's almost like muscle and tendon getting on the same page. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. actually what happens. I could see that happening, you know, uh, just, you, you know, whatever yeah. the mechanism. But that's what me, I got thinking when you had said like if this or even as simple as back to like the 505, like the the research that shows that doing tendon work, soy centrics on a metronome or, you know, stuff like that, where there's, even if it's 10 seconds down, 10 seconds up, painful. It's not even dancing. It's almost like you took the frequency and you just turned it way low. You know, slow. it's <laughs> you can barely even hear it that with that super slow waveform, You can barely hear it, but it's still a rhythm. It's still something that the body can, you know, I've heard the term, the body is a self-tuning organism. It almost like gives the body something to work with. And so I just, I think about even, I like what you said too. It's like if you if you feel good, you can just go for it. And I I think that's important for me. Sometimes I get caught on trends, and and right now I actually I'm in, I'm in a big. I'm not having my athletes do really warm ups to music actually, but my own have been to everything's been music. Maybe it's because it's winter here in Ohio, and I'm just kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah like I need some dopamine, some sunshine. Like most of my work has been to music on some sort the last two months, and actually it's gotten sunny out, and now I'm doing less of it. So for what that's worth, but. I feel like you can't go wrong in an athletic thing by like doing some some sort of hops, some sort of like sprint drills or hurdle work on a rhythm before you get to other stuff. Even um, it's just, I just think it's really good, and it, it's cool to hear that anecdote yeah. on your part.
0: Absolutely, I think um, learning to attune to rhythm uh, is a very powerful thing, and you know uh, the 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 rhythm that you have in the sprint it's only say it's not a perfect transfer from that to like being able to move to the rhythm of, you know, uh, a pop song, but it's a, it's like a lens that you can look through. There are like two lenses that we can look through on this, this central concept of rhythm and by having a better overarching understanding of it, then we can apply it better to different circumstances if we do it right. I believe, um, something I wanted to say there, but it's lost. I've lost
1: it. (laughs) It happens. It happens to be about five times a podcast, I think. So (laughs) anyways, no worries. Well, I I know we've come up to the end of uh, our time today, Rafe, Uh, but man, it was great talking to you. And it's just cool for me thinking this, it's your work is so kind of outside the bubble of traditional sports performance, but we can learn so much from it. Uh, And I really enjoy talking to you and the concepts that you bring to the table.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's always good uh, touching base with you and I'm definitely, uh, you know, I am outside the bubble, I guess, but uh, at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of, of information uh, within it that's interesting to me and that, that, that applies to my work. And so it's always nice to kind of connect to, to the streams of thought happening here and be able to offer my little perspective on it.
1: Yeah, it was great talking to you. Yeah, and yeah, both the information inside and outside, it's, it's awesome talking to you about both things. So I really appreciate it, Rafe, and thanks for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next week.